Ah, lawyers, what an incredible pain in the ass. Sorry, I just had to get that off my chest. Well, despite that reality, I'm here to convince you that legal can actually be an asset to your startup team. And my comments today are applicable whether you work with in-house counsel or outside counsel or both. Now, how you work with them and the extent of their integration with your team is going to depend on their specific role. But my goal is you leave here today with the know-how you need to get the most out of your attorneys, regardless of whether you send them a W-2 or a 1099. All right, quick outline of how we'll proceed. First, I want to make sure we state the problem really clearly. Then we'll talk about reframing the role of legal so you can see your way past the problem. Then I'll offer you three suggestions for how to convince your attorneys to make this change in mindset. And then I'll leave you with a couple of possibilities for what it looks like when you do. Then we'll take five minutes or so for Q&A. All right. So first, let's flesh out the problem, specifically in lean terms. As I see it, one of the fundamental drivers of a lean startup is failure, right? Fail fast, learn from it, iterate, and at some point, possibly pivot. And my favorite quote about entrepreneurs actually comes from James Altucher who says something like, an entrepreneur is someone who gets up every day and fails until one day, for some reason, she doesn't. And I like to think of the lean startup tools as shedding some light on that some reason. And in this sense, failure is the birthright of the entrepreneur, so to speak, and the courage required to get up every day and fail and hopefully learn from it requires embracing risk in a way that sets entrepreneurs apart from the, apart from the rest. All right, very noble picture of the entrepreneur on the one hand. On the other hand, we have lawyers. And what is the reason for being of the lawyer? Why to avoid risk. Now, some lawyers like to say they manage risk, but more often than not, they manage it by avoiding it, akin to the way my father-in-law manages my three-year-old son by preemptively duct-taping him to the wall every time they visit. That's a joke. <laughs> uh, and why do they do this? The lawyers, that is, not my in-laws. They do this because somewhere along the line, they've developed the belief that making mistakes and failing is about the worst thing that could ever happen to them in the whole wide world. And everything about their formal education and their professional training has reinforced this belief. So imagine what happens when you take, an uh, you take a professional that's grown up in that environment, and you tell them to go support a startup organization that requires failure, well, you may as well have landed them on the moon. And in some cases, it's like trying to mix oil and water. Um, but it doesn't have to be this dire, I promise. And here's how. The first thing I'm going to ask you to do is to reframe the role of the business lawyer. That role should not be risk management, but rather business enablement. Right, as we just said a moment ago, risk management almost always ends up becoming risk avoidance, and avoiding risk is death to a startup. So let's scrap that role. Let's just forget about it. Instead, let's make lawyers responsible for clearing any and all legal roadblocks that threaten a startup's growth. Let's make them true problem solvers. All right, sounds great. But how do you actually convince your attorneys to make this change in mindset? I've got three suggestions for you. Now, first and foremost, without a doubt, and what I mean to say by this is, if you remember nothing else from this talk, 
God help me, please remember this one thing. You have to convince your attorneys it's okay to fail. And you need to understand what you're saying when you say this is, it's okay to get sued, full stop. This will take some time to sink in, but it makes a world of difference, and I know it because I've lived it. Bit of background on me. I joined Cisco two years ago through an acquisition. I was the first and only uh, in-house attorney at a startup called Meraki that builds cloud-managed networking products, and Cisco acquired us. Well, during my second week at Meraki, I attended what we called our semi-annual sales kickoff. Big event, right? Rah, rah, rally the troops, go over last quarter's numbers, throw up projections for next quarter, and take a look at all the fabulous new products and features. It was legitimately infectious, and I was stoked. Well, about halfway through the first day, one of Meraki's co-founders pulls me aside and started talking to me about how he envisioned my role as the first attorney. God bless him, I don't remember a single thing he said to me that day, except this one thing. He goes, Sean, the thing to keep in mind is we're going to get sued. Going to happen no matter what. So let's just accept that reality and move on. We've got a very frictionless sales model, and absent major potential risks, we should work to keep it that way. Now, at heart, I'm kind of a shit disturber, so that really resonated with me. But even if it hadn't, even if it, had, even if it had scared me initially, imagine the power of someone in a position of authority saying to a lawyer who craves external validation that, actually, dude, it's okay to get sued. I want you focused on other things. It's huge, and it was huge even for me. Because what it did is it helped put me in the mindset, uh, the same mindset, as my colleagues who were running the other uh, parts of the business. I found myself changing the way I analyzed issues, how I wrote emails, how I even talked, especially when it came time to making decisions about the business. I became comfortable assessing the relative value of the risk to the business, engaging not only how loudly I sounded the alarm to my colleagues, but also, and equally importantly, how much of my own time I devoted to the issue. Which brings me to my second suggestion. You've got to remind your lawyers that nearly all uh, legal risk pales in comparison to the other risks that a startup faces. Right? As the very polite-looking gentleman in the picture illustrate, things like market risk, technology risk, the risk of hiring a bunch of idiots or losing your rock stars, those are what are going to make or break your venture. The risk of some customer or vendor suing you? Not so much. Now, admittedly, this is a generalization. But absent a very few specific cases, worrying about legal risk, or even spending an inordinate amount of your time trying to win a legal dispute with a plaintiff, is just not worth your time. And it shouldn't be worth your attorney's time either. Why? Well, if your attorney's role is now business enablement, he or she should be doing everything they can to help your business make good on its value proposition. And in lean terms, as you all know, what's going to sink your business is failing to generate enough validated learning before the cash runs out. So your attorney should be doing his or her part to facilitate that learning and to fostering your company's particular engine of growth. Here's a great example of the relative risks I'm talking about. Earlier this year, Cisco settled a dispute with one of the more threatening patent trolls to emerge in recent years in a case involving Wi-Fi technology. As far as legal risk goes, this was a big deal. This was one that was keeping the patent litigators up at night. And ultimately, Cisco obtained a good outcome, settling on behalf of itself and all of its customers for $2.7 million. Okay. 
but Cisco spent $13 million in legal fees getting there. Ouch. Well, about the same time, this small startup that Cisco had acquired, Meraki, closed one of its biggest sales deals to date for an initial PO nearly equal to the settlement and the fees combined, and paving the way for three to four times that amount of revenue over the next 24 months from the same customer. So on the one hand, we've got this downside cost equal to what, like three, four times the amount that a startup raises in your average Series A financing? A lot of money. But on the other hand, you have this relatively tiny business essentially covering that entire liability several times over by focusing on driving the upside. So you tell me which is more important. All right, third suggestion. You can't stick your attorneys in a back office somewhere by the IT closet, or even in the IT closet, and expect them to become instruments for the success of your business. Lawyers need the same three conditions that Eric says all startup organizations need, namely scarce but secure resources, independent authority, and a personal stake in the outcome. I don't think the reasons for this are terribly complicated, so I don't want to dwell on the point. But let me speak to each one quickly based on my own experience. Scarce but secure resources. Knowing I have a finite but non-zero legal budget means that I've been able to do things like get outside counsel involved on a moment's notice to help solve complex, a complex legal issue. There are a lot of things that I don't know about the law, but chances are there's a high-strung lawyer in some fancy office somewhere who probably does. And by being able to do the whole lawyer-to-lawyer -lawyer mind meld thing and feed them all the salient details about the situation, I've been able to get to solutions in a fraction of the amount of time that my business colleagues would if they'd had to in, uh, interact with outside counsel directly, or, God forbid, if I'd had to research the issue entirely on my own. So this has been a great tool for solving these kinds of problems, getting our folks back to generating revenue, and getting products out the door. Independent authority. You entrepreneurs especially should be thinking of this as a scale issue. Talk to your lawyers in advance about the kinds of decisions you are and aren't comfortable with them making on their own, and then turn them loose. Rarely do I need to get an exec involved in a sales negotiation, for instance, because I know exactly what I can and can't give. So I've been able to make decisions on the spot to conclude the negotiation. And lastly, a personal stake in the outcome. Let's put it this way. When your lawyers legitimately feel like a member of the team contributing to the success of your business, that's when you'll find them putting on their big boy and girl underpants and actually making decisions, rather than just hemming and hawing and counseling you as to the relative pros and cons, and then tossing the hot potato in your lap. All right, so let's assume, uh, sorry. Uh, so let's assume you have um, convinced them to develop a tolerance for risk and focus on driving the upside rather than worrying about the downside. What does this look like in practice? Well, there are probably a bajillion different ways this goes down. But let me leave you with two possibilities, and then we'll turn to Q&A. First, your lawyer should be part of those cross-functional teams that are designing and releasing uh, new products and features. Why? Well, to pull that proverbial and in cord. It's much more efficient to have a level-headed attorney spot an issue and work quickly and efficiently to address it before the product goes out the door, rather than deal with the carnage after the fact. Here's a great example. Early last year, my product management and engineering teams got me involved when they were developing our Wi-Fi-based location analytics features. More than one privacy issue there, right? Well, after they were done describing what they were doing, and my heart rate slowed to a more measured pace, 
I was able to get outside counsel involved, and we worked directly with the technical folks to review the product in detail, nip and tuck on the collateral, and really weigh in on the messaging with respect to those privacy issues. The result? 18 months later, we're still in good shape and selling those features to Fortune 500 companies. Second possibility, your lawyers should be releasing their own minimum viable products. Right? The same way we're talking all week about uh, building and shipping products that are just workable enough to test a particular set of hypotheses, your lawyers should be regularly soliciting feedback about their own work product. That way, both you and your attorneys get really clear on what are the minimum legal terms that are necessary to legitimately protect your downside while not interfering with things like customer adoption. Okay, last example. Any of you out there ever dealt with privacy issues in the EU? Oh my God, can I please stick a fork in my eye? There is so much FUD over there, and the regulations are changing so rapidly that it's really difficult to have a coherent conversation. So I worked with a product manager and a technical marketing guy to test out three or four different versions of a privacy-related agreement with a willing customer. Each time, we would hypothesize on the basis of previous data what would, uh, what would be important to the customer and what we could and couldn't live without. Then we'd ship it out to the customer, who would review it and come back with comments, many of which were rather impassioned, some indignant. We'd sit down, we'd go through the comments, we'd think through it again, and we'd ship out another version. It took, like I said, three or four times, but ultimately we got to a workable solution. And by the end of that process, we knew exactly what we had to give and what we could reserve in order to drive the business forward. All right, folks, that's my spiel. I've made some bold claims and some gross generalizations, so I'd love to have you throw out questions and we can chew on these issues more together. Thank you. Thank you. That was a great talk and a very specific one, but um, you know, we actually get a lot of questions about legal issues in um, companies of all sizes. So I think this is one of those talks that is going to have very specific and useful information for a long time to come. Totally. Um, so sort of to that point, you know, you, you mentioned a lot of um, a lot of different ideas and I wanted to get some specific examples. Mm -hmm. So for instance, you said that uh, lawyers should be business enablers mm -hmm. and that they should clear roadblocks. And I wanted to see if you could give us some specific examples of what that, what that looks like in practice. Yeah, totally. So that EU example, I'll flesh that, that out a little bit. <clears throat> we started selling products into the EU long before any attorney had ever done an, uh, an analysis of the EU privacy and security regulations relative to our product. In sort of true lean fashion, we shipped the product and waited, waited to get, um, uh, waited until there were actual sales deals that were not going through because of these issues. Then, obviously, it was a priority. So rather than holding off shipment of products until I could do an exhaustive analysis of those uh, the issues in, privacy issues in the EU, I said, all right, let's ship, and we'll see what comes. Then when those things did come, I was the one who didn't have a quota, so I could take some time in advance to then go ahead and research all those, uh, all those issues and figure out what we could uh, what kind of agreement we could put in place, what certifications did we need to sort of get those issues out of the way so we could get back to selling products. Great, thank you. Um, and then you, right at the end, you were also saying uh, 
you know, lawyers should be integrated, um, be part of cross-functional teams, and even be coming up with MVPs on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, you started to go into that, but, you know, what, what does a lawyer's MPV, MVP look like? Um, mm-hmm. Can you name a couple of examples that you have personally come up with? Yeah, totally. So, you know, I've made an effort to... Um, to keep our, the terms in our, basically in our end user license agreement really streamlined. Um, you would be amazed at how much crap you can cut out of legal agreements and still have the substance there that you need. Uh, that's one example. Um, the privacy agreement that we did with the customer in the EU, that's another great example. You know, I was kind of shooting in the dark. Uh, we tested out one thing based on a previous meeting with the customer. He puked all over it. So we tested out another thing. Then he was practically swearing. Okay, so we came back over here. You know, each time I wasn't trying to, uh, I wasn't going and writing world peace, right? And spending months and months doing it. I spent a couple hours on each iteration and would send it out and waited for the customer to come back and tell me what their issue was. And I, I do it all the time. It's like, well, you know, salespeople say, well, let's do this, let's do that, let's do that. I said, guys, I already did it. Let's send it out and see what comes back. Yeah, that's great. And. I mean, it's interesting that you say it's a couple of hours. You're talking about, you know, basically like taking a template from something or, you know, redacting or editing. I mean, are there, do you ever spend more than a couple of hours before you go through a version? God help me, no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, a great example, I was just talking to another attorney that I work with yesterday and an exec wanted to add something to an agreement that I, it was like a right that we were going to have that I don't, th- I don't think we're ever going to need to use. And it would require a significant redraft of, of the agreement. My colleague said, all right, well, I'll, I'll get started redrafting it. You know, it'll take a few hours. And I said, look, I don't think we're ever going to need it. And you've got much better things to do. So let's throw in a clause at the bottom of the page that says this, that, and the other thing, and let's go with that. You know, again, what are the minimum legal terms that you need to protect your downside or accomplish a goal? But no more. That's it. Get it out the door. And, and to my point earlier, even your lawyers have better things to do than this. Right? There are lots of legal roadblocks that are going to threaten a startup's growth, and they should be focusing on, on getting rid of those. Awesome. Thank you. And then the last one that I wanted um, a little bit more detail on, you said you started talking about giving constraints um, and both the startup talking to the lawyer, or rather, you know, as part of the team. Can you give me some examples of what kinds of decisions you know, that you make autonomously? Ah, I think yeah. you gave one, but I would love to hear like three or four yeah. examples. Yeah, totally. Um, so, like I said, comes up most often probably in the sales context. Um, it, uh, it also comes up in litigation. You know, I will get uh, any number of comments back from uh, when we're trying to settle something from opposing counsel, and it's my job to really filter those. And rather than doing what I did when I was outside counsel and sending you know, a page and a half long email and expecting my client to review it and figure out what was material, that's my job. And then I've got to raise the two or three issues at most that are really going to be important that the business is going to care about. Um, uh, let's see, what's another example? Um, yeah, you know, it, uh, uh, the... Uh, the privacy agreements, another one where I'm the guy who's making the decision about um, about what we should and shouldn't include. I mean, you know, the lawyer, uh, the entrepreneurs and business people legitimately look to me and they're like, "Dude, you're the legal guy. You're on our team. You know our products. Make the decision." Yeah, 
That's great. That's really helpful. Um, again, I think this was a super specific and super useful uh, talk. So let's give Sean another round of, uh, of applause. And yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much.